Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter 7, beginning in, in verse 24. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. As followers of Christ and as people who, who believe and trust in Him, we're called to abide in Him, to be connected to Him. And the way that we are connected to Him is obviously through prayer, but it is especially by reading His Word, by being in the Word, by reading it, by studying it, by meditating on it, by, by memorizing it. In, in fact, His Word is likened in, in the Scriptures to spiritual food. It is food for our, our souls. It sustains us. It gives us nourishment. It gives us strength. It helps us to grow up, spiritually speaking, to maturity, as the Bible calls us to. Just like your body needs physical food, your spirit needs spiritual food. Right? And the food that it needs is, is every single word of God. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As, as the Apostle Paul says, that all Scripture, all Scripture, is breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God, and it is profitable. It is, it is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, perfected, equipped for every good work. The fact is, every single word of the Bible, every single verse in the Bible, every phrase is important to us. It nourishes us, and we need to—we need it to strengthen us and help us to grow up spiritually. That's—that's the thing that we talk about here all the time at First Baptist Church. We want to help people grow to their fullness of maturity. That's the biblical admonition that we'd all build each other up in love. You need the Word of God to help you grow that way. Every single word is important. But there are times when we encounter a passage of the scriptures that doesn't just, it doesn't just feed our souls. There's a, there are times when, when the text takes you and grabs a hold of you. And sometimes it, it shakes you up. Sometimes it wakes you up. Sometimes it even roughs you up. There are times that the scripture does not just speak to you. It shouts to you. Like the, fact, like the text in Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus himself says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, I want you to see that word, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a text that shouts to me as a pastor. This is a text that sometimes punches me in the stomach as a pastor. Because very clearly the text is telling me that not everyone who makes a profession of faith, who calls himself a Christian, not every one of those people is of Christ. This text doesn't just feed my soul, it does. But it doesn't just feed my soul, it also takes my breath away. It's a text that burdens my heart and it drives me to clearly preach and proclaim the gospel so people don't come to the end of their life thinking that they're right with God only for he- to hear Jesus say the words, I don't know you. Get away from me. Another phrase that catches our attention, like the words of Jesus where he says, if anyone would come after me, this is one of the ones that we talked about at, at camp. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, Daily and follow me. There's a radical call to be all in for Christ. Right? And before you say, well, that's not really what, you know, for all Christians, you know, Matthew follows this up and says, as Jesus says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Have you ever thought about the implications of what that means? It means that following Christ is not just, and, and, and being his disciple and, and being a believer in him is not simply just intellectually accepting some facts about the gospel. Christ calls us to make him the very center of our life. As Zoe so very eloquently pointed out the analogy of the, the shopping basket for your life, Christ needs to be all. And we need to follow him wherever he may lead. Or how about the, the, the scripture Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This right here is a scripture that brings comfort to my heart. Because what I realize is that, that I am not the power of God for salvation. It's not me. It's not dependent upon me personally. My good deeds are not the power of God for salvation. There's a message that's gone out in the Christian church that says, preach the gospel and use words if necessary, as if that the gospel being proclaimed is you being nice to people. That's not the power of God for salvation. We should do good deeds so that our light shines. It gives us an opportunity to share the gospel. My good deeds are not the gospel. My persuasiveness is not the, the power of God for salvation. I would like to believe that I'm a good communicator. I would like to believe that I can be pretty persuasive in an argument, but that is not what saves people. It's not my sincerity. It's not, it's not the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is what brings the life, new, new life to people, which means if people are going to be saved, they must hear it and we must proclaim it. As Paul says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We love that verse, but there's more. He says, how, will then, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without someone sent? 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? But it's not doing it. In, it's not doing anybody any good for it to be bottled up. It needs to be declared out loud, right? So understand, Christian, it's not just about us being nice to people and kind to people. <clears throat> Should we do those things? Yes. It's about us declaring the word of God. That's what we're called to do. And in, in, in texts like this, and, and many others. I've had an incredible impact on my life and ministry. They're the ones that just hit me over the head. They shout at me. And again, Scripture is, all of it is important and valuable, but there are just some texts that when you encounter them, they're earth-shattering in, in some respects. They're texts that, that when you read them, they should stop you in your tracks and cause you to sit up and take notice and, and say, wait a minute, what is actually being said here? Well, today I'm going to share one of those kind of texts to you, one that really causes me to sit up and take notice. And that text is found in Matthew's parallel account of the text that we're in. Matthew and Mark have, obviously, a lot of similarities because they're telling a lot of the same stories. Matthew and Mark are t- would talk about this woman that Jesus that comes to Jesus for healing for her daughter. Right? And so Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, Matthew's version of the, of the same event is here. And, but in verse 28 of this story, Matthew records Jesus saying something that if you're paying attention, should absolutely grab your attention. He says to this woman in this story, Oh, woman, great is your faith. You understand what he's saying here. To this unnamed woman in the scripture, he says to her, Great is your faith. And I, want you, and I really want you to think about this for a second. Because faith itself is the foundation of of Christian life. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 2? You are saved by grace through what? Faith. He also says in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7, We walk by... What was that? And not by sight. We walk by faith, trusting in God, despite what the world tells us. It is by faith that we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It is by faith that we receive the blessings that have been promised to us. It is by faith that we enter into a life-saving, life-sustaining relationship with the living God. It is by faith that we follow where Christ leads. Faith is the indispensable element of our relationship with Christ. I mean... Without faith, what do you have? You have nothing. You have nothing. So faith is vital to us. And, and, and we all need to seek to grow in our faith. We start with our faith at a certain point, we need, and we seek to grow it. Right? But notice what Jesus says to this woman about her faith. Right? He says, oh woman, great is your faith. And understand the Greek word that he uses here. It's not great in the sense it's better than good. It's not good and then great. Right? It's great in, in the sense of scope and size. He's saying, he's saying it's, it's big. It's massive. It's large. It's abundant. He's saying, woman, you've got a big faith. You have a massive faith. And that's an astounding declaration. If you've been paying attention to the scriptures, that's an astounding declaration. Saying to this woman, you have a big faith. Because 
What does he say to the apostles, the people who've been with him, the people that, that, that were called personally by him, people that were trained up by him, people that actually did miracles themselves and watched Jesus do some crazy, mind-blowing miracles? What is the thing that he says to them over and over and over and over again? You have little faith. You have tiny faith. You have a small faith. In fact, there are even times he said, do you even have faith? If there's a bigger contrast in the Bible, I don't know where it's at. I mean, that's a huge contrast here. That by itself should be something that causes you to say, wait a minute, I'm listening now. Like, there's something to what Jesus is saying here. Because as a Christ follower, someone who loves Jesus, isn't that what you want? A great faith? A great faith that moves mountains? Right? A great faith that sustains you? I mean, think about that. As a Christian, someone who has been raised from death to life, someone who's made a profession of faith in Jesus, how would you like to hear those words yourself? How would you like for Jesus, the King, to look you in the eyes and say, great is your faith? What would you give for the Savior to say that to you personally? How much would it mean to you to hear those words? I mean, knowing what you know about Christ and and faith and what he's done for you, would these words inspire you? Would would Christ's words saying, you have great faith, would that bring tears to your eyes? Would you celebrate that? We all know what it's like when there's just those times that you long to hear someone you love say the precious words you're longing to hear. We've all had those kind of moments where we're just longing for that person that we love to say something to us. Like like how a child longs desperately to hear their father say, I'm proud of you. I'm almost 50 years old, and I hear my, my dad say those words to me. It still means a lot to me, right? Or how about the wife who longs to hear her husband say, I love you, and I cannot live without you. Or how about the husband who, who longs desperately to hear his wife say, Honey, you know, you're right and I was wrong. Every man I've ever known longs to hear those words, right? We all know what it's like. We all know what it's like in a moment to hear, to want to hear those words. And most of us have experienced that to finally to feel that, that love poured out in those words. Usually it brings tears to our eyes or, or it fills our hearts with joy. If, if that's the case that, of someone that we experience here on earth, how much more would it mean for you as a person, as a, as a believer, to hear the words of Jesus Christ look you in the eye and say, you have great faith. You have a big faith. These are the words that Jesus says to this unlikely woman. And her story has so much to teach us Not simply about having faith, but having a great faith. So turn back with me to Mark chapter 7. But I'm going to make it complicated, okay? I'm sorry. Forgive me. But at the same time, also kind of keep your finger in Matthew chapter 15. There are parallel accounts, and we're going to switch back and forth, okay? I apologize for that, but it's, it's important because these two stories come together and really fill out this idea that we need to see. So Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, and it says, And from, from, he, 
From there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you remember, Jesus just recently fed 5,000 people, well, actually 5,000 men, which means about 15,000 people, with some fish and some flatbread. And they had a lot left over. And then after that, Jesus then walks on water in the middle of a storm, comes to his disciples and calms the storm, and they finally are starting to figure out who he is. And then everywhere they go, everywhere his disciples go, people are lining up to get healed. They're, they're flocking to him. They're running to him. It didn't matter if it's a big city, a little town, a little out-of-the-way spot. They go everywhere that Jesus goes, and they're lining up to get healed. In fact, it even says they're lining up just so they could even touch the hem of his garment, and as many people as touched it were healed. Right? They're, it's, just, it's just like it's a madhouse. They are crazy, busy, always healing. And, they, and in fact, the Bible tells us they're so busy that they didn't hardly have time to eat. And when they do get to eat... And the Pharisees come along and condemn them, saying that Jesus' disciples are defiled, or they're unclean, or they're not right with God. And here's the reason why. Because they're not washing your hands before you eat. They're not following the tradition like the Pharisees do. Now, what you need to realize is this idea that's being built up here of cleanliness and uncleanliness is it's critical for us understanding this entire part of this narrative here. There is a running theme, as you're going to see, going along. Right? These men accuse Jesus and his disciples of being defiled and unclean, believing they themselves are holy, clean, and spotless. But if you remember what Jesus said, he, he, he not only rebuked these men of hypocrites for their, for their legalism and their rule following, Jesus also makes it clear that what makes a person unclean isn't what they eat or the fact that they don't wash their hands very good. right? And it's not about following rules or even their behavior. What makes a person unclean or defiled <coughs> excuse me, or at odds with God isn't anything that's external at all, but rather it comes from the heart. That's the diagnosis we talked about. What makes a person unclean isn't out there, it's in here. And this is important because now Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, which are, which are Gentile areas. And the Jews consider these places to be what? Unclean. The Jews believed that the Gentiles, or any person who was not a Jew, was by their very nature also unclean because they didn't live like them. They didn't have the law. They, didn't, they were not descended from Abraham. They didn't have the ceremonial rules that the, other, that the Jews do. They didn't even have the hygienic rules that the Jews do. And so they were considered to be defiled or unclean or at, at, at odds with God. And the Jews believed that being in Gentile land and having contact with the Gentile people could make the Jews unclean as well. That's why, as we saw a few weeks ago, that after they go to the marketplace and have contact with Gentile people, they wash their hands before they eat, if you remember. And, and they even would shake off the dust off their shoes when they come from a Gentile area before they get into their own land because even the dust itself was considered defiled because everything about the Gentiles to the Jews was unclean. But here is Jesus, right after having this discussion about what makes a person really unclean, he immediately travels to a Gentile area that is itself considered to be unclean. And if that's not enough, then he comes in contact with a Gentile person who is considered an unclean person. Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman who, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. Now this right here is a detail that we need to understand. 
This is actually the, why regular, careful Bible study is so important, because there is a contrast being set here in this story that's going to shape your understanding of what Jesus means by having a great faith. Jesus, right before this, he encounters, and the people who call themselves clean, he encounters the opposite of what is faith in the Pharisees. Which is really strange, if you think about it, because these men were Jews. They're supposed to be God's people. And they were also deeply religious, and they were also very devoted, and they were committed to keeping the whole entirety of the law. I mean, if there were rules, they, they, they followed them. In fact, they even created more rules to help them follow them. The truth is, from the outside, it might seem that they're the ones who actually have the great faith. I mean, they were known for their moral purity. And they were committed to being the best kind of Jew they possibly could be. They, they, in fact, they even went overboard. The, the Jewish people had, had, had regular annual fasts, but that wasn't enough. Shoot, let's... Let's fast twice a week too, right? Let's take this thing up to the next level, is really their attitude. And then, then, then there's the, the idea of bruised and battered Pharisees. You see, Pharisees wanted to be so morally pure, if they went into a Gentile area and saw a Gentile woman, they would actually see her and then they would like cover their eyes and keep walking. And they would fall down and bump their head or they run into stuff and they'd get bruises and scratches and stuff like that. And they wore them like a badge of honor, like, look at me, see that, I got that. I saw this woman and I covered my eyes. It was a, it was a badge of honor of their, their purity. And so from the outward appearances, it would seem like these men had great faith. In fact, if you were to ask the world at large, if you were to just ask people who are not Christians, what, is, what does great faith look like? They would say it was these men. The truth is that people who are not Christians, if you ask them, what does faith look like? They would say, well, it's somebody who's religious. It's, some, it's someone who follows the rules. It's someone who, who does all the rituals. It's somebody who plays and acts the part and looks the part. It's someone who gives the poor. It's somebody who, who does the nice things. It's somebody who prays in public. Someone who does all the things that good church folks are supposed to do. They would say that is what great faith is. But Jesus himself <laughs> says to these men, you're hypocrites. You are you're pretenders. You may look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're not. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, he gives a crushing indictment of the Pharisees that really gets to the heart of the matter. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. The outside might really look great, but inside, it's a mess. Jesus calls religious people, the religious people who were born in the right family, people who were born in the right land, people who had the right heritage, people who had the, had, had the right scriptures. He calls these people hypocrites. But then, he comes to an unclean country, and encounters not just an unclean Gentile, but he also encounters a woman. Right? And if there is a person that Jewish men were not going to have anything to do with, it was a Gentile woman. Wouldn't have anything to do with them. Wouldn't even talk to them, wouldn't even acknowledge them, wouldn't even look at them, as obviously we talked about. And, and to make it worse, she was a Syrophoenician woman or a Gentile. Now, you might say, well, what is that? The simplest way to say this is go to what Matthew says. And he says she was a Canaanite woman. 
She was a descendant of, of Israel's historic enemies, the, Canaan, the, the Canaanites. I mean, if you remember, what, what was the land of Israel called before it was Israel? Canaan. And who were the people that lived there? Canaanites. And what were the Israelites supposed to do? Drive them all out. Wipe them out. Get them out. Don't let them stay in the land. So this woman was a descendant of the very people group that Israel failed to get rid of out of the land and and caused them lots of trouble and persecution for generations. And so she was the very epitome of what it meant to be unclean according to the Jews. If there was an unworthy person, then she qualified. Does that make sense? She was the polar opposite of these men. The wrong kind of person, the wrong gender, the wrong land, from the wrong heritage. But yet, this is the one. This is the woman that Jesus says to her, says, Great is your faith. Big is your faith. Which then tells us something really clearly up front. That great faith has nothing to do with being religious. Zero. Nothing. It has nothing to do with looking the part. It has nothing to do with trying harder. It has nothing to do with following rules. Great faith is altogether something completely different. So Mark tells her, I mean, tells us that that her little daughter had an unclean spirit. Now, I don't know know if you noticed this, but like here's the insult to injury, as if she wasn't unclean enough. If there wasn't enough uncleanness to get your attention here, do you see the theme that's building here? You have an unclean land, an unclean person, now a daughter that has an unclean spirit. Again, to the Jews, she's the epitome of uncleanliness. And then, it says, this woman had a daughter with an unclean spirit, and that she heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. She begged him to cast out of the demon of her. Now, she's not a Jew. She's never met Christ before. And under normal circumstances, she would have anything to do with him. But she hears about him because by God's sovereign hand, the word has spread far beyond Galilee and has spread to the Gentile areas of Tyre and Sidon. And and she's not simply heard that there's this enigmatic man who's doing these cool magic tricks. She has heard that Jesus is healing people of all kinds of infirmities. He's casting out demons and even healing people, from raising people from the dead. So she's heard a lot about him. In fact, notice what it says in Matthew 15, verse 22. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Again, this is a spot where you should slow down and think. Because she's not a Jew. Why would she call him that? She's clearly calling him by his messianic title and calls him Lord, son of David. Why would she call him that? It's because she's been hearing about him, talking, hearing about them, talking about him in great detail what he's doing. That this was a man from God himself, that this was the Jewish Messiah himself. And people were calling him Lord. And this man was doing incredible miracles, not just once or twice, but over and over and over and over again. And she hears all of these stories, and she hears this good news that Jesus can heal anyone. And what is her response to what she hears? She believed. How do we know that she believed? Well, because she took action. 
She believed the stories about Jesus healing and casting out demons. And because of that, she believed it. She took action and sought out Jesus. Remember, Jesus came and didn't want to be found. But she sought, she, she took action and sought him out. She looked for him. She found him and went to him and asked for help. Trusting and believing that he had the power to, to help her. You see, the first element of a great faith is that it's a trusting faith. Notice what Mark says. She begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. She did not come to him and ask him to take a look at her situation and see if maybe she might be able to help. She didn't come and say, I I don't know if I'm talking to the right person or not, but I'm just wanting to see if possibly, maybe... She didn't come to see if, if it was within the realm of his, possi- his, his possibilities or his abilities to help her. Right? She had heard that he was casting out demons and she believed that truth. And because she believed, she came to him and begged him because she knew he could. She not only knew the facts, she trusted in the facts. And this right here is the crucial aspect of belief that we need to understand. Because there is a sense in the church, in this church world at large, all you need to do is believe. And Jesus is going to heal you and make everything better. In fact, we hear it all the time. People say, you just need to believe. You just need to believe. You just need to believe. You just need to have faith. You just need to take it on faith. You just need to believe. I know it don't make sense to you. You just need to believe it. This is really a dangerous statement. It might surprise you to hear me say that, but it is a dangerous statement. Because yes, you do need to believe, but you really have to understand and define what it means to believe. Because there's more than one way to believe. And it makes a difference. James, the brother of Jesus, is really, really clear about this. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe what you believe. The way you believe, the way they believe, will not lead to life. It will not be, it's not a saving faith. In fact, as we saw early on in the book of Mark, Jesus has confrontation with the demons. And one of the things that we notice out of that story is they know who he is. They believe that he's the Lord because they submit to him. They even call him the Holy One of God. And they even have a high theology of who he is. They have clear knowledge of who he is. But yet, their knowledge and their belief doesn't save them. Because their belief is merely an acknowledgement and agreement to the facts. It doesn't save them. On the other hand, you have a faith that moves beyond simply knowing some things and actually trusting in it. A real faith is a trusting faith. It's not what you believe about, it's what you believe in. There's a, those are two different things, completely. She could have believed the stories about Jesus and, and, and heard them say, I believe that, I heard that, that's awesome. I wish he'd come do the same for me. But that was not the extent of her belief. She believed it so much that she went out to find him. She believed Christ in, in his abilities to free her daughter from the demon. Can, can you see the difference between the two? The one is an intellectual acceptance of facts. The other is a trust and dependence on those facts that motivates one toward toward action, toward the object of belief. She believed and trusted Christ's ability to help. 
And that's what our faith is supposed to be like. It's a belief in Christ. It's a trust in who He is and what He has done for you already on the cross and what He's promised to do for you in the future. It's a dependence upon Him to, to save us. It's a dependence on Him and Him alone. It's not simply understanding the facts about the gospel and just agreeing with them. It's moving towards dependence and trust in Him. We, we depend on Him. We hold on to Him. The picture of Christ has been throughout the, the, the ages a picture of an anchor that people anchor themselves to. It's taking God at His word and saying, I don't just intellectually accept these facts about Christ. I'm depending on them. I'm trusting in all of my life and all my heart. I'm taking all of my hope and placing it on Jesus. I'm selling out for Him. I don't just believe the facts about Christ. I, I believe in Him. I trust in Him. And that trust is reflected then in my life. Just like it did for her. He, her trust in Christ's ability motivated her to find Him and beg Him to help. Our faith should likewise motivate us to action to do what Christ said to do. And what did He say to do? He said, Repent of your sins and believe and keep believing and depending upon the gospel. Great faith is a trusting faith. She trusted in what the people had said about Jesus. She trusted that he can do the things that he said that they said he, she can do. And she took action accordingly. So should we. So Mark, in his gospel, we see this Gentile woman coming to Jesus for help, trusting that he can help. But then in Matthew, we see in his narrative something that gives us a little bit more detail. Because this is a really important wrinkle to the story. He tells us, And behold, a Canaanite woman from, the region of, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Again, this is another text that you should go, well, Wait a minute, what, what's going on here? It's, he didn't answer her. Not a word. It's not that he didn't hear her. He's God. He can hear everything, right? He knows everything. He knows that she's seeking him. Jesus ignored her. She comes to him, calling out to him by his messianic title, begging him to help her, and he just keeps walking. He acts like he does, she's not even there. He didn't even acknowledge her, which seems strange to us Christians. We're like, wait a minute, what would Jesus do? I didn't know he would ignore people. But here this woman is, is begging for help and ignoring it. And people get really like upset about this. They're like, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not right. Why would he do that? And then many Christians in their intentions to defend God, right, you know, and try to make, make, make excuses for him will start to try to explain it away, what was happening here. But here it is in, in, in black and white. Here it is in the text. He didn't answer her. He was ignoring her. Why would he do that? Why would he just not answer her request? Why would he at least why wouldn't he at least acknowledge her? Why would he shine her on? Why would he ignore her? The answer is very simple. He's testing her faith. She believed enough to find him and ask for help. But did she really, really, really believe? Was her faith a true faith? 
Did she come to Jesus and try to talk to him and encounter him? And then he shines her on and she's like, he's not really what, what he's... You see, it's easy. It is easy to have faith when things are good. It's easy to have faith when you at least are expecting things to go well. Lord, help me on this trip. Lord, provide for me. When you expect that God is going to do something for you, it's really easy to have faith and have that hope. What about when the things in your life go sideways? What about when difficulties come to your life and you cry out to God and you're begging Him to help and then there's nothing? What about in those times? What happens when you're praying and you're praying and you're praying, Lord, heal my mom, Lord, heal my mom, and He doesn't heal your mom? What happens when you pray that God would take away the cancer and the anxiety and he doesn't do so? What happens when your world feels like it's falling completely apart and you pray your heart out in silence? You can't even feel God's presence. You feel like God's ignoring you. You wonder if he's even there. You wonder if he's even hearing you. What do you do then when your faith is tested? Is that the moment where you say, I give up? Or do you keep on believing You see, another aspect of a great faith is it's a persistent faith. A faith that doesn't give up. Even when it seems like God isn't there. Even when when it seems like God is ignoring you. Even when you feel like God is disinterested in you, you continue to believe and say, you made a promise and I trust that promise. Will you allow your circumstances to change your perspective of God or will you hold on to The promises of God by faith. Will the dark times cause you to give up on God? Because sometimes your faith is tested. Now notice, she didn't give up. Right? She begs Christ to help, and and Jesus ignores her. And then it says, his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So not only is she not deterred by Christ, Christ ignoring her, but then she begins to beg even more loudly. The idea that she's really beginning to get very loud and very persistent following them around. In fact, the Greek really kind of gives this idea that she's now making a spectacle publicly. She is making a scene. She is not going to be ignored. Right? She is begging. She is crying. It is loud and is bugging the, the disciples. It's like, okay, now I'm uncomfortable. Okay, Jesus, like, I'm uncomfortable with people not like this, but this is like, okay, you gotta, you got to stop her because, like, I'm embarrassed now. Like she's like, like losing her mind. This is exactly what Jesus expected out of her faith, because it was a persistent faith, a persistent faith that will not give up. It will not be denied. She knew that Jesus was the answer to her problem. She knew that He was the hope that she needed for her daughter, and so she was not going to give up. She was, she, she was confident that he was the answer. So she wasn't going to go away, and she was not going to be turned away. The characteristic of a real and great faith is persistence in your faith. Because faith doesn't, because if, if, if a faith isn't persistent, and I want you to hear me on this. I don't want to hurt nobody's feelings, but I want you to hear me on this. If a faith doesn't persist, it ain't faith. I hope you understand that. Person says they believe in God, right? But then things get hard. And it doesn't seem like God is with them anymore. They're not answering their prayers. And what do they do? They stop trusting in God and they walk away. That's not a real faith, brothers and sisters. Remember, Jesus makes that really clear. He even tells a story in, in Mark 
about the, the, the parable of the sower, right? And he said that some of the seed falls on the shallow ground where the rocks are. And he says it grows up really quick, but it has no root. And, 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 and that it looks like it's good, but then the sun comes and it scorches it and it withers away. And he says, those are people who seem like that they receive the word with great joy. And, and like they are like, yeah, Jesus. But then difficulties come and persecutions come. And what happens? Because they have no root, they fall away because their faith wasn't real. It's the opposite of a persistent faith. Real faith in Christ always looks to him, no matter what the circumstances are. It's grabbing hold of Jesus and saying, I don't care what happens, I ain't letting you go. You're my only hope. I'm always going to trust in you. In fact, a persistent faith is a demonstrated faith. Again, it's easy to believe in God when the sun is shining, but what happens when the worst case scenario happens in your life? What about then? One of the things that I remind remind people of all the time when I counsel couples or counsel individuals when they're having difficult times is I always remind them of their faith and I ask them, I tell them, I say, hey, now's the time. So this is the moment in your life where you need to ask yourself, do I really believe all the stuff I say I believe? Do I really trust in Christ the way that I said that I trust in Christ? Do I believe the promises that he's made? Do I believe that he is a good God and he is a just God and he will work all things out for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose? Do I believe that or do I just say that I believe that? A persistent faith is a demonstrated faith and it's a faith that won't give up. A persistent faith is the, is the evidence of a real faith. By the way, remember what did Jesus say? The time is now, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And the words repent and believe are in the present tense imperative. Which means that that believing in Christ is not something you do like getting a flu shot. Done that, I believed. It's an ongoing, enduring belief. You don't just believe at some point in the past. You keep believing And a faith that persists is proof that faith is real. Because again, a faith that fails, faith that doesn't persist, isn't faith. It's a wish. That's the difference between a faith and a wish, by the way, is the persistence. And so the woman demonstrates a trusting faith and a persistent faith, but then she also, notice, demonstrates a humble faith. She comes to Christ in complete and total humility. Look at how she comes to Jesus and how how he responds to her. She falls down at his feet and begs him to help. And he says to her, "Let let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, people want to soften this. People go... Jesus didn't really call her a dog. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't mean that. Jesus is nice. He nice. And he wouldn't say something like that. That's what he said. What he was saying is, in other words, it's not right for me to take the blessing that belongs to the Jews and give it to you. Now, again, it feels harsh. Right? And people want to explain it away. But Jesus is testing her faith. And then... She says to him, Yes, Lord. You see that? She didn't argue with him. She didn't deny it. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, she came to him with no pretenses. 
with no sense of entitlement. She came to him with nothing at all to offer him. She came to him in humble faith. She knows she didn't deserve anything from him. Because who is she? Not a Jew. She doesn't obey the law. She's not following the rules. And according to all the rituals, she's the epitome of uncleanliness. I mean, so like, she's like the worst of the worst. And so she had nothing to offer him. No merit. She's an unclean woman who had, a, who had a daughter with an unclean spirit living in an unclean land with an unclean heritage. <laughs> of all the people who deserved his time and attention and grace, she wouldn't it, right? Brothers and sisters, that's the picture of us. You look at that woman, you're looking at yourself. Because we're the ones who are unclean. We have nothing at all to offer God. We are wretched sinners with no ability at all to make Him love us. We deserve nothing from God except for His wrath and His justice because of our sin. If there's if there are some words that you could write down that you that you would do well to remember, is God owes us nothing. This is sometimes hard for people to wrap their head around. He owes us nothing. Sometimes people get twisted up about the sovereignty of God in salvation because they believe that if God gives grace and mercy to someone, but not others, that's just somehow unfair. As if God giving grace to one then entitles everybody else to it. God owes nobody anything. The only thing he owes us is the fury of his wrath and his justice. It is only by his grace, it is only by his grace that he, can, that he rescues anyone. That's why we come to him humbly. We hear the good news of what he's done and that there's healing in him. How do we come to him? With humility. Fully understanding we bring nothing to the relationship. There is no merits. There is no good deeds that outweigh the bad deeds. We are not good people who occasionally make mistakes. There's not even the ability within me to choose him on my own without his help. I chose him because he first chose me. It's all grace. All grace. As the hymn writer wrote, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. A great faith is a humble faith. And again, look at her response. She answered him and said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You're right. You're right. I'm a dog. Compared to you, I'm a dog. I'm, I'm not worthy at all. But I believe with all my heart whatever tiny scrap of grace that you would see fit to give me. Whatever little tiny crumb of mercy that you would be able to bestow on me, though I don't deserve it, that little tiny morsel, whatever you would be willing to spare by your mercy is sufficient for me. I come to you with empty hands and and I humbly accept whatever you would give me. I know I don't deserve it, but I am trusting in you, and I firmly believe you can heal my daughter. What overwhelming, incredible faith. Great faith is a trusting faith. It's a persevering faith, and it's a humble faith. But it's also a submitted faith. Not only did she accept Jesus' statement 
for her being undeserving. And not only does she bow to his feet, she calls him Lord. The song we sang, praise Adonai, is the Greek word for Lord. It's the exact same word that she used of him. That's the, that's the word we're using to worship the Lord. That's the word that she used in the text here. She's looking to him as the master. In fact, her response about being a little dog, getting the scraps, alludes to the idea of dogs and master relationship. The idea of her being a little puppy under the table implies that there's a master of the house who decides who gets to eat. And she is submitting herself to her master. Her faith is great because she willingly submitted herself into the hands of Christ. And I'm going to tell you right now, if there is a part of any of these things that we just talked about, about faith, that people are going to struggle with, it's going to be this one. Because faith in Christ is about submission to Him. It's about submission to Him. It is about surrender to Him. It's like Zoe said. It's about taking your, your basket of your life and all the things that you want and that you're trying to get and taking and emptying it all out and then going, Jesus is all I can afford. And I'll just accept that and whatever else he has to offer me. Right? Jesus is, is not just your Savior. He is your Lord. He doesn't just call us to believe. He calls us to follow. He calls us to sell out. He calls us to obedience. He is the Lord. And if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And the reason why this is important is in the modern evangelical Christian movement, even in conservative circles, there is this growing theology called anti-lordship theology. Now that sounds really harsh. They renamed it free grace theology. It's this idea that people can come to Christ and, for, and, 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 and make a profession of faith and Jesus saves them, but then they don't have to accept him as the Lord in their life. They believe that, that a person can, can make a sincere profession of faith in Christ and never live in any kind of obedience and actually they can actually live in unrepentant sin and live like heathens all the days of their lives and still be saved. It's based on the modern idea of what's called a carnal Christian or a spiritual Christian. It's, it's a very common theme in Christianity today, but that was unheard of before the 20th century. Did you know that? It was something that was developed in Dallas Theological Seminary, the idea of a carnal Christian. There was no such thing ever in the history of Christianity. A carnal Christian was a person who makes a profession of faith, and they're, and they're sincere, and they're saved, even though that their lives are never transformed, and they never live for God. And they believe that, that you can be a carnal Christian, or you can be a spiritual Christian. Right? One who, who sells out for Christ and then experiences the blessings of, of Christ in this, in this life. But hear me, church. There has never been and there never will be two classes of Christians. There's only one. Those who receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Because you cannot have one without the other. If Jesus is your Savior, He's your Lord. And if He's not your Lord, He ain't your Savior. Jesus didn't say, why don't you come and say my name three times and say you love me and then you're going to be good. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And says, those who won't take up their cross, they're not worthy of me. He says, deny yourself. He says, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. He says, anything that's more important to you than me, including your family, if, there's, if your family is more important to you than me, then you're not even worthy of me. Real faith in Christ is a submitted faith. And that's what we see in this woman. She was submitted to Christ's lordship. She was trusting. She had a trusting faith, a persistent faith, a humble faith, and a submitted faith. And he says to her then, O oh, woman, great is your faith. And then he says in, in, in Mark, You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon was gone. Christ rewarded. I want you to hear this. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel right here. If you want to know what the gospel is all about, it's right here. Christ rewarded this unclean woman from an unclean land who had an unclean heritage for her faith. That's the gospel. This is the picture of the gospel. Everyone, regardless of who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened in your life, everyone, regardless of all of that, can find healing in Christ if they will come to Him by faith. If they will come to Him by faith. If they will trust in Him. And if it's a real faith, it will persist. And it will be a humble faith. And it will be a submitted faith. And their life will then be marked by transformation. And so my heart for you is if you're someone who has not made that step, come. Nothing do you have to bring. Not reputation. Not money. Not pedigree. Not even religious knowledge. You don't even need to bring anything except your willingness to submit your heart and mind to Christ and accept the gift that he has to offer you of eternal life by faith. And those of us who have walked in that, then let us further come in. Right? And what we experienced at camp, if I could just take a moment to come back to that, what we experienced at camp, I had kids that, that didn't, I had a, one child that wasn't a believer, became a believer, and I had other kids that were believers, but became stronger believers. They grew, right? They came closer in, and that's the call. Is Christ is calling you further in to trust more, to submit more, to be humble more, to persist more. That's my admonition to you. And guess what? That's the good news. That's all we have, right? That's all we have is our faith in Him. And He rewards that with great rewards. Let us walk in that as a church. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.